Good morning and welcome. We've got junior high up through adults in here this morning. We're going to do a question and answer time uh, with David Van Drunen, and we're going to talk about all sorts of interesting things, I think, hopefully. Okay, I should open with prayer, and then we'll go ahead and get started. Father, thank you for this morning, uh, for the privilege that we have of gathering together to learn, to encourage, to be encouraged. Thank you for uh, the church and the family that we have here. We're grateful. We're grateful that you've uh, given us uh, an abundance of gifts and opportunities to, to learn more about you and to be able to think your thoughts after you, to be able to worship you uh, as you would want to be worshipped. Uh, indeed, you're gracious and kind, and we're thankful for this. Please encourage us during this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I've got 10 or so questions that I'm going to ask Dr. Van Drunen. I think there are questions that would represent things we might want to know about the Bible, things we might want to know about God, uh, things he is knowledgeable of. He is a systematic theology professor and professor of ethics at Westminster Seminary, California. And so I thought maybe we'd start by asking him, what is systematic theology anyway? Well... Systematic theology is uh, it's an attempt to understand theology in its holistic, connected, interconnected character. Okay. All right, so we, we, the, the term systematic may have sort of seemed very dry and maybe a little intimidating, but systematic, at least systematic theology done well should be a biblical theology. And so it, it, it's interested in what the Bible teaches. But it, instead of, say, studying the Bible or looking at the Bible in terms of a verse-by-verse exposition of a book, okay. we'll say, that systematic theology attempts to examine particular topics in Scripture. Right? So what does all of Scripture teach about sin? What does all of Scripture teach about the nature of Christ? Right, so uh, it's a way of trying to bring all of the various parts of Scripture together uh, on a particular topic, and then to show how the different topics of sin or the doctrine of Christ or the doctrine of salvation, how they all fit together. Okay. These are not just disparate, you know, these are not just isolated truths, but they all fit together into a whole. So, so Old Testament, theology. New Testament, no matter where you look, it's going to systematize the whole thing. That's right. And, and how would you define theology? Probably the most simple way to define theology is the knowledge of God. It's the, God knows himself, right? So God has a perfect, infinite, complete knowledge of himself. And of all things, we have finite minds. We, we can't know things the way God does. We can't, we, we can't know things infinitely or comprehensively the way God does. But God makes himself known, and he makes us able to know the world around us as well. And so when we're thinking about how we can know God, uh, we're talking about theology. Theology is really a way of describing our knowledge of God. And, you know, in a way, you can think of theology in a more academic sense. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a, you might say, a professional theologian. I, I, I get paid, you know, to you know, be a theologian for, you know, for, a, for a living. And so what I'm doing is I am trying to understand God as he reveals himself in Scripture and then to be able to try to communicate that to others. But there's a sense in which all Christians are theologians. 
uh, in that we're all called to be growing in the knowledge of God. And in that sense, theology is something that should be for, for all believers. Good. Even unbelievers are theologians, right? Well, yeah, that, that, that is true. Uh, yeah, I mean, Romans 1 says that all people know God. <laughs> they, the problem is that as sinners, we, te- we want to suppress that knowledge of God. But um, it is true. Even unbelievers are theologians. They're just, unfortunately, there are theologians who don't want to be theologians and try to act like they're not theologians. Yeah. Good. Appreciate that. Well, Dr. Van Drunen has written a fair amount on uh, natural law. Uh, You may have never even heard that before. Perhaps you have. Um, But it is something that the Bible talks about. Uh, It's something that he's focused a lot of his attention on. So if you would explain to us what is natural law and maybe show us a passage in Scripture that would actually indicate this. Uh, Just kind of unpack that a little bit, why why it's important. Sure. It might be helpful just to connect that briefly to what we were just talking about, okay. because when we talk about this, the idea that we have knowledge of God, theology in this general sense, um, we would say in, in historic Protestant, evangelical, Reformed theology that uh, there, there, are, there are two sources of the knowledge of God and really of, of all truth. Uh, there's, there's the knowledge that we have from Scripture, what we would call special revelation, mm-hmm. But there's also the knowledge that we have from the created world. Uh, God reveals himself not only in scripture, but also in, in nature. Uh, he reveals himself to our consciences. And part of what he reveals in this natural revelation is himself. So in Romans 1, it says that um, all people from the things that have been made know about God's eternal power and divine nature. So if you're a human being living in this world, you know that there is a God. God makes himself, he impresses his knowledge upon you just every day you live and open your eyes in this world. Uh, One aspect of that knowledge that God makes known to us uh, in nature is the basic moral requirements that he has for us. He made us in a certain way. He made us as image bearers of himself. And because we're image bearers, we are... We're called to act in a certain way in obedience and in service to God. And, of course, Scripture tells us a lot about that. But we also know the basics of that from the natural world, just by being alive uh, and living uh, in this beautiful world that God's made. And that's, what we, that, that's basically what natural law is. Natural law is the, is the knowledge we have uh, of God that comes from the created order. Now, if you think about... Romans 1 and, and, and Romans 2. I mean, th- th- those are probably the, the texts that, if you ask for one text, yep. that's really, uh, that's the place where Christians traditionally have gone to emphasize this idea. So is this, is so. this related to law of God in our hearts or not? It, it is, yeah. Let me, yeah, yeah. Okay. Let, let me talk about that. So in Romans 1, Paul says, be, be, beginning in um, uh, verse 18. Let's open our Bibles to Romans 1. Okay, let's do that. <laughs> He wants to make sure I don't just shoot from the hip. And these folks here have been trained not to believe people, so that's encouraging to hear. <laughs> <laughs> okay, since we have our Bibles open, it's interesting. Romans one eighteen: The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So Paul's beginning here in Romans one eighteen. This extended section of his letter, it goes all the way through 320, 
in which he's focused upon exposing all people as sinners. No matter who you are, no matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, everyone is uh, a sinner. So he's beginning to talk about that now. God's wrath is being revealed against ungodliness, unrighteousness. So then verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Well, who is he talking about? Is Is he just talking about Old Testament Jews who had God's scripture revealed to them through the prophets? Well, no. He says in verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So, I mean, that's really a profound statement, right? So he's saying, um, and that, then let me say at the beginning of verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, right? So what he's saying here is that it, it's, it's not just Old Testament Jews who had the law revealed to them at Sinai, who had all the prophets. It's not only them who know God. Every single person in the things that have been made, know about who this God is, and they're without excuse, which means that we're all accountable to God. Uh, no one is going to be able on the day of judgment to say, I, 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 didn't know, I didn't know that I was supposed to live a godly, righteous life right. before you. Right. And, so, and, and then uh, the reason I wanted to add verse 21, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. It's saying that it's not just that it's possible for people to have knowledge. It actually says they have the knowledge. Mm-hmm. Every, everyone has that knowledge because it's, you, you can't miss it. God is, it's like he's bombarding us constantly with himself. And then if you turn over to chapter 2, this is still really part of the same extended argument that Paul is beginning in those verses that I was just talking about. Um, can I take a few, just a few minutes on sure. this? I think it'll, okay, I'll, I'll do the three-minute version rather than the one-minute version. If you, this is good, right? That's what we want. If you look at, at Romans 2, verse 12, just, just to kind of follow, I, I really want to mention verses 14 and 15, but I think it, you see why Paul says what he says in verses 14 and 15 if you get what he says in mm-hmm. verses 12 and 13. So verse 12, Romans 2, 12, he says, for all who have sinned without the law, and he's, he's referring to the law of Moses here, mm-hmm. right? Okay. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And I think this makes intuitive sense to us, right? So he's saying, basically, if you're an Old Testament Jew, an Old Testament Israelite, and you've had the law of Moses revealed to you, God's going to judge you according to that law. Mm-hmm. If you don't have, if you're a Gentile and you, you don't, you've never been given that law, you don't know what that law says, God's, God's not going to judge you according to that law. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. We, we wouldn't expect... I mean, we wouldn't think it's unjust to be held responsible for the laws of the United States if we live in the United States. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if someone came and tried to convict us of the, you know, violating the laws of Somalia, well, yep. that, that would be unjust. We would know that's unjust. Yep. Okay, makes sense. so everything is, that makes perfect sense, verse 12. And then Paul says in verse 13, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And I suggest that Paul's creating a certain kind of tension here because after he's just said, if you don't have the law, you're not going to be judged by the law. And he turns right around and says, it's only the doers of the law who are going to be justified. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you think, how is that going to work? How can I be a doer of the law if I don't know what that law says? Mm -hmm. How can I possibly be justified 
if I don't have that law. Mm-hmm. And I think Paul resolves this kind of tension that he's created in verses 14 and 15. Because he says here, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, the law of Moses, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So what Paul is doing here essentially is saying, it's true that if, you don't, if, if you're a Gentile and you've never received the Mosaic law of Sinai, God's not going to judge you on that. However, even if that's true of you, you still have the basic requirements of that law written on your heart. Mm-hmm. Right? Because of this natural revelation, there's no one who can say, I didn't know that I shouldn't murder. I didn't know that I shouldn't steal. I didn't know that I shouldn't commit adultery. Because it's written on your heart. It's written, yeah, yeah. God is, God is impressing that, that knowledge on the hearts of everyone through our, through our conscience okay. by virtue of being an image bearer of God living in this world. And so I think that's why he can say what he says in verse 13, that, that as part of this larger argument, he's saying that, you know, apart from Christ, that's an important part of this, mm-hmm. apart from Christ, if you want to be justified before God, if you want to stand righteous before God, you need to be a doer of the law. Whether that's the Mosaic law, the natural law, mm-hmm. You better be one who obeys the law, and that's true of every single person outside of Christ. And we learn in chapter three that that, that no one no one makes it. That's yeah. why we need Christ. That, that, that's right. right. So I mean, he, he brings this whole section that begins in one eighteen. That it, it ends in verses nineteen and twenty. Maybe it's worth reading. Now we know that whatever the law says, and you can say that's the Mosaic law primarily, but it's also the natural law. Whatever that law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Right, right, right. So then, with all that under our belt, so to speak, come back to natural law and talk about its value. Um, Why is it important to study? Why is it important to understand? What's the practical value? Yeah, well, let's see if I can do this briefly here. Yeah, I, one thing that I think is, is important, um, think of it this way, you know, I mean, we, we live in, in, a, in a culture that you might say is suffering from a little bit of, maybe more than a little bit of kind of moral chaos in which it's, it's really hard to convince a lot of people that there's really this objective moral truth that's there, you know, that there are things that really are right and wrong for all human beings. Mm-hmm. You know, you might kind of have your own story, you might kind of have your own experience, you know, your own feelings, but, I mean, we, we might be challenged sometimes as Christians thinking, I mean, is it really, you know, is it really true that all people, you know, really no objective moral truth. Um, and I think it's important for us to be reminded from texts like this. I, there are a lot of other texts that can mm-hmm. make this point, but I think this makes it especially clearly that, yeah, there is objective moral truth out there. That doesn't mean there can't be cultural differences on a, a variety of things, mm-hmm. but there are some things that we are all responsible for as human beings, and we're accountable before God ultimately. And I think... Uh, 
having some understanding of natural law gives us a certain confidence as we go out into the world to say, yeah, you know, there are a lot of people who are, you know, are going to make these claims about kind of this moral relativism and moral chaos. But you know what? We can be confident as Christians that every single person we encounter at some basic level knows that there's a God and that we're responsible before him and that we have to answer before him someday. And I think that leads to another point that's important. Maybe I'll I'll mention two two more points. Uh, So this is a a second point that's important that really feeds off the first, is that I like to think of the natural law as a kind of a scaffold upon which the gospel is built. Okay. That without the natural law, it's hard to really make sense of the gospel. And here's the basic reason why, is that the proclamation of the gospel, that we are, that by faith in Christ, in Christ's perfect work, we are made right with God. That's, you know, a little summary of, of, of the gospel message. I mean, that assumes some pretty important things, right? That assumes that there's a God, that we're responsible before him, that, we've, that we know about that responsibility, and that we've, we, we've failed to account for that. Well, do people really know that? I mean... I think the natural law, the reality of the natural law helps us to understand why, you know what, the gospel message is something that can make sense to every single person. Because every single person at some level knows those things, that knows there's a God. Because everyone is a sinner and sin is lawlessness, right? Yeah. Go first John. That's right. Yeah, and every single person knows that basic law of God mm-hmm. and knows I haven't I haven't followed that law as I ought to. Mm-hmm. And that, what, uh, uh, one way to put it is that the natural law makes the gospel intelligible, makes it understandable. Right? Without the natural law, the gospel would just kind of, it, it, it wouldn't really make sense. Unless but, maybe you're a Jew and you, and right. you have Mosaic law right. or but, you're raised in a Christian home and you understand that. But yeah. The gospel, that's not true for most people. Yeah, the gospel can make sense to anyone in right. the sense that they know right and wrong deep down inside. Right? That's right. And that ultimately that right and wrong is an accountability to God. Yeah, yeah, okay. And so the, the, the third thing that I'd mention, that I would mention about natural law, is that I think it's, um, I hope this isn't getting into too big of a subject. I'll, I'll just, just say it briefly and something for you all to, to think about, but wisdom is of central importance to the moral life. Mm-hmm. And if you think about a book like Proverbs, which is you know, the, the longest of the wisdom books that we have mm-hmm. in, in the scriptures, so much of Proverbs, it, it's encouraging us to be observant about the world around us, to uh, try to understand how the world works. Mm-hmm. Right? And I would say that that is actually, it, it's an exercise in natural law, mm-hmm. that God has put together this world in a certain way. It holds together in a certain way. There are certain ways that if you act in certain ways, it tends to promote good for yourself and for other people around you. There are certain ways that if you act, it's going to tend to be destructive for you, yourself, and for other people around you. And we get that all over the place in Proverbs. Right. But, I mean, it's, what Proverbs help, wants us to do is to understand that it's not, just by, it's not just by memorizing Scripture text that we come to understand that. It's actually by being observant of the world and having experience in the world, being reflective about your life in the world. Okay. And I would say that that's actually, that only makes sense if there's a natural law 
if this world makes moral sense. Okay. So let's take that then. That makes sense. Talk then about, let me put it this way. Do, Do unbelievers observe the world around them and make valid observations? And how does that relate to natural law? Yeah, well, they certainly do. I mean, I think every one of us can probably think about non-Christian friends or co-workers that we have that we may really admire their wisdom mm-hmm. in a lot of important respects. Mm-hmm. That we just see a, a, a sort of a... that They have this way of dealing with people that's very effective. They have ways of... They're, 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 they're very competent in the way that they live a lot of their lives, the way they run their businesses, maybe even the way they raise their children. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we can, I mean, it's, it's, in some respects, it makes us feel badly because we feel like, you know, we, shouldn't we as Christians be superior to them in all these ways? But we, it's actually, it's just not true. And as we try to, to explain, well, why is it, how is it that, that unbelievers sometimes have pretty profound moral observations about things? Mm-hmm. And sometimes can kind of put us to shame by the way that they conduct themselves. Uh, how do they have those insights? Well, it's actually because God is revealing his truth. And as Romans 1 says, all people know mm-hmm. these things. And yes, as sinners, we all suppress. We have a tendency to suppress it. But we don't all suppress it in the same ways. And God, by his, his common grace, his, his, his providential mercy in the world, allows many unbelievers to have real insights that can um, be very profitable and fruitful for our, our, our life in this world. And I think it should be, it should be a source of, of humility for us as Christians, is that just because we're believers doesn't mean we're always going to be on the moral high ground. Sure. And, and uh, I think that's, that's really important for us to remember. And so and I appreciate that because natural law, law then allows me kind of a category to be able to look at unbelievers and see them, seeing them doing things well yeah. and say they're doing things well. That's right. Um, that doesn't mean their motives are right. That right. doesn't mean they're doing good with a capital G. That's right. Um, yeah. But it, it really is helpful to have the category instead of yeah. pretending like no one does right except Christians uh, because yeah. that's simply not true. Well, if I could just point out one text mm-hmm. that, that I think brings that out pretty powerfully in Genesis 20. This is a story of uh, Abraham and Abimelech. Abraham, you know, he's a sojourner, he's want, you know, living in different places uh, in what would be the, the promised land. And uh, he's, uh, he, he's, in order to uh, protect himself, he says to Sarah, his wife, just say that you're my sister. So no one's going to kill me because they want to marry you. And Abimelech, the king of this local city where he's going, takes Sarah into his house, and God actually warns Abimelech about this. And he, I mean, you have to remember that Abimelech is not, I mean, God's entered a covenant with Abraham. God's revealed himself. Abraham's a man of faith. There's all these wonderful promises God's mm-hmm. given to him. Abimelech doesn't have that. And yet, Abimelech comes to Abraham, this is verse, verse 9. So Abimelech, the unbeliever, comes to Abraham, the believer, and says to him, what have you done to us? How have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin, i.e., by giving me a married woman to take into my house? And he says, you have done to me things that ought not to be done. Well, Abimelech, he knew. There are some things you just don't do. 
If you're a married man, you don't give your wife to someone else and say, oh, she's just my sister. Abimelech, the unbeliever, knew that. And he confronts Abraham, the believer, and says, you've done things that ought not to be done. And imagine how, in a, how ashamed Abraham should have felt. But we probably all have somewhat analogous situations where we've been put to shame by an unbeliever. And I think, you know, it's a, it's a source of humility. And I think without some idea of natural law, it's hard to explain a text like that. Super helpful. Very helpful. Shifting gears a bit, um, but it's going to be somewhat related, I think, and we're in Genesis. Um, here in Nebraska, uh, we're going to vote coming up here about the death penalty. And so I was wondering if so you So are had... we in California, by the way. Okay. Yeah. So does the Bible give any insight? Um, I just heard on the radio, as you're thinking about your answer, I heard on the radio this past week a caller called in and said, well, I'm a Christian, so I can't be for the death penalty because I'm against murder. Uh, and the host argued back. And I mean, what does the Bible say about this or in principle or explicitly? Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think we can say some things in principle. I mean, I think when it gets to concrete matters of public policy, you, mm-hmm. you need to back off. But I think, yeah, I mean, I would, you said we're in Genesis. So I, you may have in mind Genesis 9, and that's where I would point. So if you, you, turn, if you, if you were in Genesis 20, you turn back a few pages. Um, of course, in chapters uh, 6 and 7 of Genesis, you get the story of the great flood. And then after the flood, in uh, chapter 8, um, beginning at the end of chapter 8 and then continuing into chapter 9, uh, God enters into a, a covenant with, with Noah. And this is, uh, this is a part of Scripture I've done a lot of thinking and writing about. And this is, I think th- this is a very important covenant. I, th- I think it gets overlooked. It doesn't get as much attention, or at least careful attention, mm-hmm. as it ought to. But this is a covenant that God makes with the whole universe. Right? With all, all human beings, not only with Noah and his family, but with all his offspring after him, also with every living creature. Um, it has to do with seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. So, I mean, it, the natural cosmic forces. So, this is a universal covenant. And there are, there are a handful of commands that are given in this covenant. It's not a huge law that's given. But one of the things that we read, uh, so Genesis 9, verse 6, um, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. I think it's helpful to read in light of the previous verse. So in the previous verse, God says, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. So there God is saying, I'm the judge of all the earth. Right? I, I am going to hold everyone accountable for his deeds, and particularly the, you know, this, the violence against one another, mm-hmm. against human beings. Remember back in chapter 6, the earth was filled with violence, and, and that's what actually, that's what triggered the flood. That's what okay. God looked, he looked and he saw violence on the earth. So uh, God says, I'm going to hold you accountable. But then verse 6, he's, what, I think what he's saying here is that he's delegating a kind of judicial authority to, to us. And so, yes, he is the ultimate judge of all the earth, but he's saying, you human beings, you need to actually do justice. Okay. And I think this is, this is not a direct establishment of a legal system or a political system, but I think it, it, it's an indirect 
establishment of legal and political institutions. Basically, as human beings try to keep this, as human beings try to do justice, mm -hmm. they inevitably form courts of law, okay. political structures, right? So what we find here is, a, I think, is a basic statement of justice. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man, shall his blood be shed. Um, there's good reason to think that this is not just a statement of fact, but it's actually a kind of a commission that okay. God has given. And it captures a, a, a broader principle, I think, and that's that justice should be proportionate. The punishment should match the crime. Mm -hmm. He who sheds the blood of man, uh, by man shall his blood be shed. Mm -hmm. Blood for blood. Right? And I mean, that's something that I think, this is, I think, part of natural law. Every person kind of understands the punishment should match the crime. Okay. Yeah, that makes you sense. Know, you don't punish a small crime with a you know, life in prison. Mm -hmm. you, know, you don't punish a great crime with a slap on the wrist. Right? It, has to, it has to match. That's the bigger principle here. But I think it is interesting. I mean, what is, what is the proportionate penalty for someone who has taken someone else's life? At least on a principial level, you say, well, for, you, you forfeit your own life mm -hmm. by taking someone else's life. So I think, I think there's no principial reason for a Christian to say, I can't support the death penalty because, of, because I'm a Christian. I would say, actually, there's good principial reason to support the death penalty as, as the proportionate penalty for murder. However, I think there are all sorts of other things you have to ask on a practical level. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, when you get in, in, into the death penalty, you start asking questions about, you know, are we doing a good job with our judicial system in actually identifying who are mm -hmm. the guilty parties? Mm -hmm. You know, are there other biases? Um, other abuses in the system. And I think those all have to be taken into account. Um, so I, I, I don't know all the dimensions of your, um, your, your, your particular sure, debate, sure. and I, I'm, I wouldn't make any voting recommendation, but I think, I don't think... Well, that's my next question. No, no I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I hear what you're saying, and I hope we all do. There, there are other issues involved. Principially, he's saying it's not wrong because it's it's not murder, by the way, um, correct? That, that's right. I mean, it's, I mean, okay, you might look at it this way. Is, is locking someone up in prison for five years, right? It, if you just did that to somebody, someone off the, you pulled them off the street, locked them up for five years, that would be a terrible mm -hmm. thing to do to someone. It would be a terrible sin. But you might say if that is, we determine that that's the just punishment for a certain sort of crime, mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're not... You know, then it's not a sin to do that, and I think that's that's right. So, it, if it is in response to a murder, I would say it's not a murder. We, we ought not to call it a murder. Okay. It's yeah. Response. But he is saying, and I appreciate this. You saying that in, but there are other issues involved. Yeah. Right. So in principle, yes, it could be done, but there are all these other potential injustices. And you said, are we doing a good job and treating yeah. people the same way? And yeah. It's complicated. Yeah, that's right. Speaking of complicated, um, let's transition and look at First Peter and what it means to be a stranger and an alien living in this fallen world as believers. Mm -hmm. And maybe if you can give us some, some encouragement, uh, I would like us to actually look at that. Yeah. 
uh, what's it, First Peter chapter two? Yeah, two eleven. Yeah, let's maybe two eleven. Let's see. And and I'm going there because you've written a fair amount on this as well, and yeah. two kingdoms, and here we are, we're going to vote here pretty soon, and that's really complicated, and uh, there's all kinds of moral issues involved. If you could, maybe, maybe I'll read it, and if you could give us some sure. some encouragement, maybe, in, in helping us understand how we would apply this. Mm-hmm. So First Peter chapter 2, verse 11, I'll read down to verse 17. Beginning in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, wage, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor." Yeah, I think the, the the calling us sojourners and exiles. I mean, that 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 is, I think, one of the two of the key images for understanding our our identity in this present world. Our identity as believers. That's right. Okay. Yes, yes, right. And it might okay. What what does it mean to be a sojourner and exile? Well, I think probably most of us would know instinctively something of what that means, right? A sojourner is someone who is kind of living in a land that's not is kind of wandering without a permanent home. Okay. An exile is someone who is um, doesn't have access to his homeland, right? Mm-hmm. Has been in, in some way has to live outside his homeland in some other land. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important when we read a text like this that we don't just think in those general terms. But Peter is undoubtedly picking up on Old Testament mm-hmm. themes here, because. In the Old Testament, sojourning was an important theme. And actually, it's Abraham who is the sojourner. Hmm. And, and also um, Isaac and, hmm. and you know, his, his family throughout uh, Genesis. Numerous times throughout Genesis, it said that they are, they're sojourning. They're sojourning. Right? And then exile. Well, we know that's a really important Old Testament theme because um, the Israelites were, um, because of their sin, they were, God sent them into exile in Babylon. Mm-hmm. They had to live out there go away from Jerusalem, their homeland, and live in a foreign mm-hmm. land. So what Peter is doing here, I'm, I'm quite convinced, is saying, if you want to understand your identity in this world as a believer, as one of these, you know, in, in the verses right before, what, the part of this chosen race, this holy nation, mm-hmm. you, need to, you need to go back and think, I want you to go back and think about Abraham's experience. I want you to think about the exiles. And, and so that, that's, that's an I think an interesting exercise. So, I actually already talked about Abraham a little bit, but just if you think about the exiles briefly, what was it like for them? Well, Jeremiah wrote a letter. The prophet Jeremiah from Jerusalem wrote a letter to some of the early exiles in Jeremiah 29 and actually told them how they're supposed to live. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he said, settle down, build houses, plant gardens, get married, have children. 
He's basically saying, okay, you're living in a foreign land, but keep going with the ordinary things of life. All right? don't, don't, just, don't just stop and huddle up in a hole somewhere, but you know, keep working, have homes, have families, do your thing. And then he goes on, and, and not only that, and this is the most remarkable thing, he says, uh, seek the peace, seek the prosperity of Babylon, pray for her. Now, remember, in Babylon was, Babylon was pretty brutal. Go read the, like Habakkuk chapter 1. Babylon was brutal. Um, and, I mean, they're in the process of destroying Jerusalem. And he says, pray for her. Seek her peace. Because in its peace, in its prosperity, you're, you're going to prosper. So what he's basically saying is, well, okay, let me add one more thing from Jeremiah 29. He says, after 70 years, I'm taking you back. You're going to return to Jerusalem. I think that's, that is so relevant for understanding our place in this world. And we are people, the, the reason why we are sojourners and exiles in this world is because our true citizenship is in heaven. Mm-hmm. Philippians 3, verse 20, and a mm-hmm. lot of other texts that say similar things. That's where our true allegiance is. That's where, our, that's where we really belong more than, more than to any country, any city, any neighborhood here in this world. We are citizens of heaven. And Omaha is Babylon. Omaha is Babylon. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think Omaha is better than Babylon was. I mean, <laughs> better than ancient Babylon. But in principle, uh-huh. it's not in principle any different. I mean, and that's, a re- that's something we need to remember because we can sometimes we romanticize our, our country or our state or our city. We need to, I mean, as, uh, we, we, you know, we can have a healthy patriotism about our, mm-hmm. our homeland here in this world. But we need to keep that in check because our true patriotism has to be for the new creation, for the heavenly, that, that, that kingdom with, you know, that city with foundations, as, as Hebrews says. So we're seeking so, the good of Omaha, and it's not irrelevant. That's right. right. It's relevant, you but it's not the it. ultimate. That's right. You pray for it. You seek its peace because, as Jeremiah says, when it prospers, you will prosper. We understand that, right? Mm-hmm. If, if the Omaha economy is good... That's good for you if you're trying to run a business here, if you want a job here, right? If, if, if your police and your judges are doing their jobs well, it's, it's going to be for your good. So we, 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 we pray for that. We do our part, whatever that is. You know, we contribute to the welfare of our, of our city. But we remember where our true homeland is. You know, Hebrews 13, here we do not have a lasting city. As great as Omaha may be, especially on a you know mid-fall day when it's 75 degrees like yesterday, you know it's pretty good. And you're playing golf. Yeah, <laughs> but you remember this is this is um, ju- just as the Israelites. You know, it's, it, Jeremiah says, "Build houses, plant gardens, settle down." After 70 years, I'm, I'm taking you away from here. Build your houses, but don't think that this is it's not a permanent house. So. In that light, and in light of the text, is it is it to be expected that we feel conflict? I belong to this place, sort of, but it's not my ultimate home. I have responsibilities here, but they're not ultimately ultimate responsibilities. Things aren't black and white for me always. Uh, yeah. They're gray, and yeah. 
I don't feel comfortable and I'm frustrated and... Yeah, I, I think that's inevitable. And, I mean, I, I, I think going back to, the, to the, ex, the, the Old Testament exile theme, the, the exile in Babylon, think about the book of Daniel. Um, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, mm-hmm. was life always smooth for them? I mean, I mean, here we actually have sort of this um, real-life example. Okay, how, how does it look for a godly person to live in exile? I mean, there are great examples of serving the city, right? I mean, they sought the peace and prosperity of Babylon. And yet, as they tried to live godly lives, there were things about Babylon that they could not fully embrace. Right? And, um, yeah, there, and there, I think there is that inevitable tension that we understand that uh, as First as Peter says it, you know, you, as the, those, those later verses you were reading, it means that we have to submit ourselves to, uh, to our, our, our rulers. And yet, I mean, we know that our political rulers, they're sinful human beings. And they're sinful human beings with power. And sinful human beings with power are more dangerous sinful human beings than sinful human beings without power. And um, there's probably not a single person here who feels co- warm affection to all of your political rulers. But yet, we're called to live in, in, a, in a proper submission to them. And, I, you know, we, I think we are called to have a certain love for our country, our state, our city. At the same time, it can never be kind of a blind patriotism. It has to be a kind of a critical patriotism. We realize that there are, there are, there are patterns of conduct in our cities, in our in our countries that we can't we can't fully embrace as those who are believers. Um, Romans 12, you know, don't don't be conformed to the the pattern of this world, mm-hmm. you know, but be transformed. And and then 13 has us submitting to government. That's you exactly know? Like, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's so when you, when you say t- tension, I say yeah. There's the Christian life is one in which I think we inevitably feel tension. If you don't feel tension. It's probably a sign that there's something wrong. Ah, helpful, because you're not acting like a sojourner or an exile. Yeah. Because there would be tension in there. I was just just doing some writing on this just last week, and a line that I wrote that I don't don't think I'd ever written this before, but it it sounds funny, but I kind of liked it after I wrote it. It sounds because you don't really want to like what you write too much. And there are a lot of things I write that I don't really like it, so... This is not a confessional. No, but I was actually writing on this theme, and I, I, I said something like, I wrote something like, a Christian who doesn't feel homesick is spiritually ill. If you don't feel a, a kind of a longing for your true homeland, for your, your heavenly homeland, if you are fully content here in your city, in your state, in your country, there's something wrong. Um, so tension is not, it, does, it doesn't mean we like the tension, but it's actually a sign of spiritual health rather than spiritual. That's good. You should write that down. Oh, wait a minute. You did. I did. Yeah. <laughs> I just have to make sure I don't delete it when I'm editing. <laughs> uh, as an aside, Jeremiah 29, Pastor Mike Holloway preached a sermon on Jeremiah 29 a couple of weeks ago. So if you didn't hear that, it'd be a good follow up, um, just to dwell on that a little bit. So. Speaking of your writing, 
uh, I have a quote from you, um, and I want to read it and have you unpack it for us um, and explain it a little bit so that we might understand. It has to do with the Reformation. This is Reformation weekend. Tomorrow's Reformation Day, I believe. Um, and so in light of this being Reformation time, a time we remember, uh, as you mentioned yesterday, the 499th anniversary, mm-hmm. um, if you would help us with this, this quotation. I, I like the quotation. Uh, I did give him a heads up. I was going to do this too, by the way. Um, he gave me the heads up about an hour ago. So. <laughs> <laughs> In the car after I locked the doors. Okay. The most basic and important idea that came to characterize mature, reformed theology is the distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. I'll read it one more time so everybody can digest it a bit. The, mo- the most important, let me put it that way, Uh, The most important, basic and important, excuse me, the most basic and important idea that came to characterize mature reformed theology is the distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Yeah, the the covenant of works uh, refers to God's original relationship with Adam before the fall. we call it a, a covenant in, in the Reformed theological tradition. We recognize that um, God doesn't deal with people as strangers, that God enters into relationship with people. And that even though we don't find the word covenant in the first few chapters of Genesis, we, God, we know that God entered into a relationship with Adam. And essential to that relationship was that God demanded obedience from Adam. Right? I mean, God was... He didn't only reveal himself as a lawgiver. He revealed himself as a kind and generous God as he made a beautiful world and gave Adam many blessings in it. Uh, But Adam was required to obey God. And God said that that on the day you disobey me, and particularly through that that test of that tree, the day you eat of this tree, Mm -hmm. you will die. And you think about that, and God was demanding perfect obedience, right? I mean, because it only took one sin Mm-hmm. for God to come in judgment. So it wasn't as if God was calling Adam to be pretty good, good most of the time, but he called Adam to obey him perfectly. That's what we call the, the, the covenant of works, is that Adam had to work, he had to obey, and that if he obeyed, God would have blessed him with life. That, um, I think there's good reason to think that God would not have kept Adam in the, just in the garden in that situation forever. He would have blessed Adam with some sort of a new creation blessed life. He already had life, but it would be an eternal life. That's right. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And um, Adam failed. I mean, there's, that's, that's it. Adam failed. One sin and it fails. And so, wonderfully, we read about these other, this, this covenant of grace that God has mercifully entered with us. Um, Throughout the scriptures, we read about God entering into covenant with his people. And you think about God coming to Abraham. And he doesn't come to Abraham and say, you need to obey me perfectly if you're going to, if you're going to live, if you're going to have everlasting life. I mean, I wouldn't have, Abraham was already a sinner. I already would have failed before God even said it. But, what, but God gave him promises, promised him a coming Messiah. And Abraham believed. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. What the covenant of grace is, is God coming to sinful people after the fall. 
and saying, you were responsible for obeying me perfectly, but instead of me demanding that from you to perform that, because you can't do it, I'm going to provide that in Jesus Christ. My own son is going to come and offer that perfect obedience and also pay the price for your disobedience. Mm -hmm. And because of his perfect righteousness, you will enjoy that same promise of everlasting life that Adam, that Adam forfeited. Okay. And that's the covenant of grace. And so in, instead, of, in, instead of you or me getting up in the pulpit on Sunday morning and saying, obey God's law perfectly and enjoy blessed life and fellowship with God forever, we say believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> Trust in his perfect work and enjoy blessed, everlasting life with your God. That's the difference between covenant of works and covenant of grace. Okay. So then what makes that the most important thing in the Reformation? Did I really say that? <laughs> Not exactly, but... <laughs> well... You're more nuanced, by the way. Well, when you think about it, if you don't have that, what do you have? I mean, if you're not reconciled with God, if you lie under God's curse... If you lie under God's judgment, if you have no hope, I mean, tell me what else you might have. Tell me what else could possibly make up for that, mm -hmm. to make that seem not that important. I mean, that's, that, that seems to me to, get, to be the most essential and basic and foundational problem we have that needs to be accounted for. We need to be right with God. There's no, there's no relationship we have with anybody else that could possibly come close to being as important as that relationship with our Creator. And so the, the fact that God has not left us in our sin under the covenant of works, but has provided a beautiful, perfect, all-sufficient Savior, and by trusting in Him we have life, I mean, that's... Um, that's the foundation of, of our entire, entire spiritual life. Good. It makes me think also how, how the Protestant reformers have helped their people, disciple their people in how to read the Bible. Yeah. So now, now we have the Bible in vernacular, in our languages, yeah. and yet Old and New Testament throughout are filled with commands that sound like covenant of works. Yeah. If you take them and isolate them. That's right, yeah. And yet, at the same time, they mentored us and showed us these two lenses, if you will, covenant of works, covenant of grace. You need to make sure you read this properly. Yeah. Yeah, just, to, I mean, one thing that may be helpful to, um, to help everyone here to really have some biblical text to really hang these big ideas on, I, I'd, I'd encourage you to, to look at Galatians chapter 3. Uh, verses 10 through 12. I'm not sure there's anywhere in Scripture that quite, in, in, in a very small small place, puts it quite, helps us to see the distinction covenant of works, covenant of grace, quite so explicitly. Um, so, Galatians 3, verse 10. This is a quote from Deuteronomy. For all who rely on works of the law. See the works. You see it right there. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide 
by all things written in the book of the law and do them. I mean, that, that is, that's a, a really summary of the covenant of works, mm-hmm. right? The law, you got to do the works of the law, and not just some of them, some of the time, but all the things written in the book of the law. Right? It says, if, if, if that's you, you know, if, if you're under that covenant of works, it says you're cursed because, because we're all sinners, and Paul's assuming that we're all sinners, right? So then he says, verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. And there he's quoting Genesis 15, God's promise to Abraham. That's, that's the covenant of grace. That, that, that's it in a nutshell. Righteous shall live by faith. Right? And then verse 12, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. That's covenant of works. You know, and so it, it's, it, it's, um, Paul is drawing from these different Old Testament texts to, to, to illustrate this, 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 this bigger point that he's making. Um, if you don't believe in Christ, kind of by default, you're under the covenant of works. Mm-hmm. We're all born under the covenant of works. We're all born in Adam. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, it's by faith in Christ um, that we come out of the covenant of works and are, are, stand right before God. So I would say right there, that's, that's, this is a really important text for seeing the distinction of those two covenants. Awesome. Super helpful. We need to wrap things up. Um, it's 10 o'clock, and the worship service starts at 10.15. So let me close this time in prayer, and uh, we'll take a break. Father, thank you for thoughtful interaction uh, with your word. We're thankful that it is infallible, uh, that's inspired. It's from you, from your mouth. Uh, we're grateful that ultimately it has one author and all holds together. And we're thankful that we can know things. And even though we can't know things exhaustively, uh, we, get, we can know things truly and we can know that salvation is of the Lord, even as we've just been reflecting upon. Uh, thank you that you don't hold our trespasses against us if we're in Christ by faith. And Lord, we're grateful for this. Encourage us today as we fellowship and interact with one another, as we enjoy our time of worshiping you. In Jesus' name, amen.